morning, everyone. Glad you're here. Are you excited? Next week, we're going to get to start singing Christmas carols. So we're going to close up our, our study of the, um, of the book of Acts. We're not finished with it, of course, because there are several more chapters ahead of us. But we're going to pause here in chapter 11. So we're going to conclude our study of the, of the early section of Acts, the early development and the power of the Holy Spirit moving through the early church, the community of faith, and pushing them further outward into mission. And so we're going to stop here today, and we're going to look at what I believe to be is a recurring theme in the book of Acts, which is this early church, this early ecclesia, this early community of followers. And we're going to talk about biblical community and what are the critical elements of biblical community. And then next week, we're going to jump into a Christmas series. I had a dream, and I heard the voice of the Lord. I don't know whether it was or not, but I heard it's a glorious season. I really did. I heard that in a dream. And so we're actually going to title our next three, our, our December series, It's a Glorious Season. And then it aligned with Acts or Isaiah and several passages in Isaiah that I have been reading about God's glory shining down through the nation of Israel. And I think there's a, there's, a, there's a tie in there. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And I believe that the coming of Jesus is all about the glory of God being shown through the, the believers in the church. And so we're going to look at it's a glorious season and what glory and Jesus and his incarnation uh, represented for us as early followers, as followers of Christ, and as, as the early church. And we're going to study it through the, the early chapters of Luke. So in Luke chapters 1, 2, and 3, ending with the genealogy in chapter 3, but we're going to look at it's a glorious season and the glory of God through the coming of Christ. And then Christmas Eve, we're going to have two services, one at 3 o'clock and one at 5 o'clock, right here, identical services. And we're going to talk about the genealogy of Jesus and that one aspect of the genealogy, which I think is so essential, and that is the fact that the genealogy points to the fact that Jesus really came. And if Jesus really came, that means his story is true. And if his story is true, then he brings to light all, every great story that you've ever heard. Every great story that you've always believed in or wanted to believe in, there's an element of the truth because Jesus came to bring us the greatest story. And every little story has a component of the big story in it. And so that's Christmas Eve, so we're set. We're going to have a great Christmas season. One thing that we need, as James mentioned, is a team of people to decorate this place. We have four boxes. We don't have to put it all out, but we have wreaths and lights and candles. So let's, let's step up. Let's step up and maybe take one week. Somebody take another week. Somebody take another week. Let's get it done and let's actually decorate. I mean, this is like your home, right? I mean, you wouldn't go through Christmas at your home without decorations. So let's not do that here at the River Church. So I want you to stand up and sign up and say, I'm, we're willing to do it. I'm willing to take the first week, the second week, or the third week, or Christmas Eve, okay? So we, let's pull together and do it, all right? Are we all in? Great, all right. All right, so that, I've got a lot of volunteers. Okay, so here we go. Acts chapter 11, we're ending our study and talking about what community really looks like, the, 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 the biblical community that's presented in the book of Acts. Now, I want to begin this morning by talking a little bit about community as a concept. 
And one of the key books that I read that describes community is by Scott Peck. Did anybody read Road Less Traveled? It's a great book. It's great for high schoolers. It's a great book for college students. It's a great book for anybody because it talks about the idea of delayed gratification and where real gratification and real purpose and hope comes from. And Scott Peck, in his writing experience, kind of comes to faith and, and, and finds faith through his developing, writing these ideas of real purpose and meaning. And in one of his books, he writes the, in The Drift Drum, he writes about community. And he talks about what real community is about and how we all want and desire real community with each other. And he says, in and through community lies the salvation of the world. I mean, he's talking about wholeness there. He's talking about fulfillment. He's talking about the fact that you and I are unfulfilled as individuals until we experience real community. I mean, do you believe that? I think that's the great longing of our generation. I think people want community. I think they are looking for that community. And so few have a deep sense of community. I mean, you may have felt that way as a high schooler or when you were in high school, and maybe you still feel that way, that, there's, that you wonder, where is my real community? The people that will stick with me um, when things are good and when things are bad. Or sometimes we feel like, you know, we have convenient relationships. And they're convenient. They're social. And they, they're helpful for a period of time. And then it's over. And something happens. And the community's gone. And I want to ask the question, where does real community lie? I'm not talking about, like what Scott Peck says in The Different Drum, he talks about this pseudo-community that we often stop at. We, we stop short of real community and pseudo-community, which is a fake community, which is a community where I put my best foot forward. But what often happens in real community is we move from pseudo-community, where we're living a lot of pretense, we're, we're, we're putting up our best image, but we're not being real, to some chaos that happens, some crisis, and Peck says that oftentimes that's where community breaks down and disappears. Because some crisis happens, some conflict, some relational conflict, it's over. But if you can push through the chaos, you come to a third level, which is emptiness. And he's talking about emptying yourself of the barriers, of, the, of, the, of what you have in your mind as what you're holding other people to. And what you're holding yourself to, and you're simply becoming real and honest with yourself and others. And then you push into real community. And I think people want that. I think people desire that. And I think one of the real culprits in our society and in this generation is individualism. I mean, it's back in 1800s when de Tocqueville came to America and wrote Democracy in America. He said the habits of the heart are, are critical characteristics of the American culture, and one of them is individualism. And yet, if we do not push through individualism and, not, and go beyond individualism, he says it will lead to the fragmentation of American society and social isolation with its citizens. We'll become isolated and fragmented if we are not balanced with other traits. And I think that other trait and what Scott Peck is talking about is real community. And the question is, where are we going to get that? Well, here in Acts chapter 11, we have three clues to what real community is like in the early church. And I want to just list them. You have a little uh, uh, outline, but there's no notes in it because I had to get my outline early this week. So 
I wasn't by my, my notes, so I wasn't able to get it, but let me give them to you right now. Here are the three points that I want to make this morning about real community. And the first is, we've got to, first of all, get through what I call a superiority complex. You've got to get over yourself. So this whole idea that I'm superior to somebody else, get over your superiority complex. That's number one. I find that in Acts chapter 11, 1 to 18, in the story about Peter. And then the second thing is, I found in this passage, is that we've got to become like a Barnabas. Barnabas becomes a critical individual that brings together real community in the early church. So become a Barnabas, which is an encourager. And we find that in the next section of our text in Acts chapter 11 from 19 all the way down to 26. And then in the last section of 27 to 30 of chapter 11, there's a famine. And they give to the famine. And I think there's a spiritual principle in there for community. And that is give to the famine. And we're going to talk about that. So let's look at these three things, these ideas of community in the early church. Because I think people are thriving, striving for and desiring true intimate community. Now that was most certainly true in the early church as well. There's no question that the church was set within a cultural milieu where there was a deep longing for community. In fact, people formed into groups or gatherings of all kinds in order to find community in the first century. I mean, some of our great writers and theologians have identified a couple of them, and one was more of like a civic community. They called them politia. And if you were part of a politia, you were part of the general concerns of the civic, the civic concerns, part of a civil affair group. There was also an oikonomia group, which is basically a household group. Oikos is home in Greek. And the oikonomia, which is the household or family structure, which included far more than your nuclear family. The first century oikos was a makeup of people connected by relationship through family, but also through uh, apprenticeship, slaves, freedmen, um, certain apprenticeship and, and, and workers that would work with your, your, in your uh, particular field, um, they would be part of that family, the oikonomia. And so it became a larger network of, of individuals that were apprentices, extended family, that uh, formed a community. And so a home in the first century is very different than a home today. Home would have larger areas of meeting. There would be more people there. There, would be, there could be potentially multiple families. It was a larger group. It was a bigger network. And people wanted to be part of that. That was community in the first century. Synagogues represented community. Um, mystery religions formed these communities called theosoi. And theosoi, they were these religious gatherings, a little odd in nature, some of them have their, they practice certain weird behaviors, like ripping animals apart with their teeth and things like that. But they were very strange. But there were many different groups like that. But they, they formed a community, a good brotherhood. Um, they, they, they served all sorts of functions, like psychological needs, social needs, spiritual needs, communal, practical, even mystical needs. So community met a lot of needs, but in the first century, most of them were self-seeking. Few of them demonstrated the characteristics that we find in the early church. 
And I think the reason why the early church survived as it did amidst such great persecution is because it represented a community that people really wanted, a true deep community, a longing of the soul. So let's look at those three qualities. In the very first section, we have the story of Peter. And now the church in Jerusalem wanted to know about Peter's dream. And last week we looked at this idea of Peter's dream where he saw this, had this vision, and the sheet opened up, and there were all these four-footed animals, and, and the voice said, eat, everything is clean. Now for Peter, being a Jew, living by ceremonial standards of laws of purity, this would be, this would be not a good move. You would not just eat anything, nor would you eat with anybody. In order to stay pure and clean, and to stay pure to your faith and your religion, you needed to watch what you ate and who you ate with. And what Peter saw is that when the, when the came open, and it says, get up, Peter, kill and eat in verse 7, what he saw was a picture of the opening of the message of Jesus Christ in the early community, the new gospel community, is now open to all people. Those from religious backgrounds, those with no religious backgrounds. It was a combining of this group, all these different groups of people. And yet that represented a tremendous struggle for those that came from religious backgrounds. Their whole identity was wrapped up in their cultural and traditional and religious practices. And in order to let those go or to meet or dine with people that didn't practice what they practiced was, was just really, it was forbidden. It, was, it, would be a, it would be a betrayal of their faith. It would be a loss of identity. And yet in verse 12 of chapter 11, it says, the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. And he's talking about going to the Gentiles and dining with them. And yet this remained a real struggle for Peter, and I think it's a real struggle for you and I. In the text, we find Peter open, and he dines with Gentiles, and the gospel is open around the dinner table. And the dinner table, by the way, represents not simply a meal. We have to understand dining in the first century in an oikos, especially a Christian home. In a Christian home, when you dined, you dined in the name of Jesus. The whole meal was around dining and supping together with others that represented and believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it was a remembrance. And it was at the forefront of your thinking as you dined together. And so now you have Jews and Gentiles dining together to remember Christ that come from different backgrounds. And yet what we find is that this was a continual struggle for Peter because in Galatians chapter 2, Paul has to confront Peter who's now fearful of dining, continuing his dining practices with Gentiles and wants to push away and just simply dine with his Jewish friends and brothers. And so Peter, Paul has to uh, uh, identify the problem with Peter and call Peter back into fellowship with Gentiles. And I think this is the point. I think what Peter struggled with is what you and I struggle with. To get to real community, you have to give up a sense of superiority. For Peter, what it represented was something powerful and good. 
It was religious. It was, it was based in the commandments of God. These were good things to remain pure and clean, to be holy, to be pure, not to touch something impure so that you could worship God in, in the synagogue or in the temple. It was a good thing. And yet oftentimes what it becomes is a sense of superiority. It's very subtle, but often the things, the cultural practices and traditions from our background and our religion often make us feel more superior than others. And one of the first things that we have to do is be willing to let, let that go for the sense of the community in which we've joined. And so what we find here in this passage is the first step to real community, and that is being willing to dine, to commune with people that are very different than yourselves. Completely different. Cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds, they all came together in the name of Christ. This is a real problem. I mean, this was not some, you know, small kind of um, um, minimal problem that could have just been overlooked or could have been worked through. This was a serious problem in the early church. And until they come to this place where they're able to dine and commune with one another and let those go, they were not going to be able to press into real community. It would have just disappeared. It would have been fragmented, and the church would have remained totally fragmented, and, and, and it would be completely different than what it is today as a result of Peter pressing into this. And so we find this, this issue of identity. Where's your real identity? Is it in those things that make you feel more superior than somebody else, or is it in Christ himself? Oftentimes what happens is we want identity. We want to feel value. We want to feel like we're better. And so we look for that, and so we often feel better than others. And we set up this sense of superiority, and what happens in it is that we isolate ourselves as opposed to become part of a community. Tony Schwartz, in an article in the New York Times in 2015, wrote an article that said, The Enduring Hunt for Personal Value. And he talks about our, our desire, our, we, we strive after value by working harder to prove ourselves. And yet deep within that, we find that we're not truly satisfied. The more we work, the harder we work, to try to make ourselves valuable, what often has, happens is we begin to compare ourselves to others. We want to feel better than somebody else. And this is where the problem lies. And he says the answer is not in working harder. He says we desire or we derive the greatest value not by seeking to build a better case for ourselves. Instead, we do so by understanding better what we value most, meaning what we stand for most deeply, and who we really want to be. Then we use the conviction and those skills in the service of others. We feel the best about ourselves when we stop focusing obsessively on filling our own sense of deficit, but making others feel more valued makes us more valuable. And I think this was a lesson that Peter had to learn. I think this is a lesson for the community. That when the Holy Spirit fell upon this one community, and the Spirit told Peter to go with no misgivings, and he came back to that after Paul addressed it in Galatians 2, he began to find and develop real community. And that's true of you and I. So the question is, what are the barriers? What are the things that we raise up against real community? The barriers that could be, could be 
social barriers. It could be financial barriers. It could be all sorts of barriers that we put up to developing real community because we have this sense of superiority. The gospel is the end of your hunt to matter, to have value and worth, to, have a, 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 to act superior, segregated. It's over. Because of God's love, it's done. We don't have to act that way. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul describes the church as the head, and then there's a body. And the body is fitted together in a unique way, and each of its members work together. That's a picture of the body. That's a picture of this early community that we work together. And as Robert Banks says in one of his books on Paul and community, he says the Jews and Gentiles carry out past religious and cultural patterns of behavior into their new way of life. So they didn't let them go. They brought them in with them. And yet cultural diversity, religious diversity, coexist in a newfound unity of mutual toleration in the early church. That's what the early church looked like. And so the question for us this morning in this first aspect is, what superior attitude is robbing you of true community? I mean, what is it? Is it your background, your education, your finances, your religious background, your knowledge? That you need to begin to see that God breaks it in. It doesn't matter anymore when we see Christ bringing equality. The second thing that I see in this passage is that once the church began to be scattered, there was a need for it to be gathered. And community was developed not only in Jerusalem, but we also find that in the church in Antioch, which is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, a new community was developing. It's probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Maybe a half a million people live there. So it was a very large, very prominent city. And the believers began to meet in this city, in Antioch. And this is where we find that now the new movement outward all throughout the regions of the Mediterranean. This is where it begins, right here in Antioch. This becomes the epicenter. This becomes now the new location for the outward movement of the church throughout the rest of Acts. It begins here in Antioch. And what we find is the church of Jerusalem sends a delegate to help develop the right community for this new endeavor. And they send one individual. You see his name? It's right here in Acts chapter 11 in verse 22. The news about them reached the ears of the church and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And when he arrived, he witnessed the grace of God. He rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And then it says, for a brief time he left to go to Tarsus to look for Paul, and when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church, there it is, Ecclesia, the community in Antioch, and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So we find Barnabas as a key player, just as Stephen was, and Philip, and Saul, and Cornelius, and Peter. And now Barnabas plays a key role, just as you and I play a key role in building community. I mean, there's Stephen, and he's, he's the martyr in chapter 6 and 7. He's got the boldness. 
There's Philip. He's the evangelist. And he's full of enthusiasm in chapter 8. And in chapter 9, Saul comes to faith. And Jesus says, you will suffer for me, Saul. And we find that Saul represents steadfastness in the early church. And Cornelius. Cornelius is living among the Gentiles, and he's the connector, and he's connecting Jews and Gentiles in chapter 11. And now Barnabas, and Barnabas takes central, central role in the early development of the church. And Barnabas is this individual, and his name is Encourager. He is called Huios Paraklesos. Huios Paraklesos, son of Encourager, son of encouragement. So Barnabas' name was encouragement, like the Holy Spirit, who encourages us to continue in developing our faith, moving out, developing and moving, and be encouraged, empowered. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas played that role in the early community. And I think the real challenge for us in deep, authentic, sustainable community is to, be, to find many, many Barnabases in our community. Be a Barnabas. You may be a Barnabas, an encourager. So let's look at some of the things that Barnabas did. The first thing is that he pointed out the grace of God that was at work in the early community. It says here that he saw and observed the grace of God and rejoice. And it says as a result of seeing the grace of God at work, this unconditional love, unconditional love, working itself out in the body of believers where there's no judgment, no pretense, loving one another, encouraging one another, helping one another, Barnabas begins this encouragement ministry with them with the resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. He was a good man, it says, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And many came to the Lord as a result of Barnabas, Barnabas's central role in developing community. And I think the first thing that we learn about a Barnabas is that this is a person that points out the grace of God in the early community. Where is the grace of God seen in our community? How can we point to it? Do we know where it is? Are there people that are pointing, saying, there's grace, there's grace, there's grace in our church. We see it all over. We see it working in different people's homes, in their communities, and through their lives. Are we pointing that out? The second thing that I see is that he trained leaders. And it says that once he got Saul and he brought Saul back, the two of them, who became dear friends and leaders of the early church, and we find Barnabas and Saul throughout the book of Acts. They're going to continue on a ministry. They're going to have disagreements, by the way. There's going to be crisis in their relationship, but they're going to come back together. See, they're going to, build through, they're going to work through that crisis and build real community. But here, they're teaming up, and what are they doing? They're training many people that are becoming disciples of Jesus. A disciple is a learner and a follower of Christ. It's one who learns. There's no way to develop deep, intimate, authentic, sustainable Christian community without learners. We've got to become learners. We need trainers in our midst to train and develop others in the core beliefs, the orthodoxy of our faith. What it is that you believe and why you believe it draws you deeper into your faith, draws you deeper into a trust relationship with God. And if we fail to do that, we will not build true biblical community. It's one of the reasons why next year 
uh, the staff, we all want, the, all of our leaders want to come together and we want to do some leadership development. We want to have a multiple nights throughout the year where we're training you in the basic core beliefs of our faith. And I want to challenge all of us to step into that. Some of you are trainers. Some of you are Barnabases out there that know God's word, that are trained in certain areas that can be part of that. And, and at all levels. We need to be doing that at our junior high level with Tommy, Matt, with our high schoolers. And our high schoolers need to be involved. You need to step up to the plate. You know enough. And Barnabas is now training, and I believe the households. He's training all individuals in the, within the household. And they are becoming disciples. The third thing I see Barnabas doing here is that notice it says that here is the first place these disciples, these trained up individuals that now know what they believe and why they believe in Jesus were first called Christians. See the word Christian there? It's the first time it's printed in the New Testament. It means, Christianitas means literally uh, part of the Christ crowd. It means that they were Christ followers. Literally, they're in the crowd. They're with Christ. They've joined with him. They weren't the ones who came up with the word. Observers saw them as these Christ followers. They were part of the Christ crowd. And what I find unique is that they were willing to be identified as Christ followers. It's a real sense of commitment when you are willing to step up to the plate and identify yourself as a Christian. And when you identify yourself as a Christian, Christianios, you are basically saying, I'm part of the crowd of Jesus. You know, in baptism, we do this water baptism ritual. We'll do one in Easter, and if we need to do some more, we'll do that down at the beach or somebody's pool. And we baptize somebody. And we often say it's the outward expression of the inward desire to identify with the newfound faith that you have in Christ. But what I find even more significant is the fact that in the baptism, you are willing to identify with the community of faith. That's what baptism is. It's saying, I'm willing to identify myself as a Christ follower and identify myself with that, with that body of believers. That's community. I think one of the great challenges of this generation for churches is that people are uncommitted to community. They're totally uncommitted. It's a real challenge. And it's a challenge for us to consider our level of commitment not only to our faith, but to the community in which we really find the most important elements of our life, our soul development. And we kind of come in and out of it like it's an additive. Like we need it sometimes and then we don't need it. And, and we, we, we don't have that sense of I'm committed, I'm part of it, I'm willing to contribute, I'm willing to participate. And I want to challenge us to see Barnabas as the individuals who's encouraging, not just a pat on the back, oh, everything's great, but sometimes encouragement is a kick in the pants. Maybe sometimes it's just like, hey, let's get going. Come on, let's keep driving. Let's work on our faith. Let's grow in our faith. Let's step up. Let's see God at work. Let's trust him. And I see Barnabas as that kind of, our church needs to be filled with Barnabases. Those are the kind, and, and this is the kind of person Barnabas was. The third thing and the final thing that I see in this passage is that this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of their names was, was Agabus. And he stood and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be certainly a great famine 
in all over the world. Really what he means all over the region, probably all of Palestine, a famine was coming. And he was prophesying. And so what did the church do? I love this. The church didn't go, well, gosh, let's just start praying. Well, shoot, what a bummer. How are we going to take care of ourselves? Notice what they did. It says they took, this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. They determined in their own mind voluntarily. That was the unique aspect of this particular community. It was not by force. They did not demand it. But each one determined, they predetermined, they sat down, considered what they were going to give as a contribution for the general relief of the greater good of the gospel in all of Palestine. And they looked around and saw the great need that was about to happen, and they began to give. And as they did this, sending it in charge of Barnabas and the Saul to the elders, they, they, they handed it over. And I think the challenge of community at the third level is give to the famine. And I'm not talking about a physical famine. I'm not talking about a financial famine. We don't have that in our generation. We don't have that in our community. That's not true of where we live. We have a spiritual famine. We have a deep spiritual famine when, where people's souls are, are, are suffering. And they're, 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 um, they're starving for something far more real. And you and I have an opportunity to give to the, to the ministry to develop people's souls, to feed their souls out of a famine that we see in our land. It's a, I see it all around us. People are very spiritual. They may even be very religious, but they're still starving for what God really offers, Jesus Christ in a personal relationship and a commitment to him and his ways. And they're not willing to enter into that. And you and I as a church, as part of a community, when we give to the famine, we're giving to this continued outreach into the local area and around the world. There is a great famine in the land. And I believe it's metaphorical here in the sense that it's far deeper than just simply feeding people. It's feeding their souls. And oftentimes by feeding people and meeting their basic needs, you're also meeting their spiritual needs. There's a real connection. There's also another connection that I find interesting, and that is the idea of within community, we find this thing called koinonia. Have you ever heard that word koinonia? It's fellowship. You ever been to a church? They call it the, the you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the fellowship hall. Well, it comes from this idea of koinonia, that we experience koinonia together. And oftentimes we think koinonia is getting together and having coffee, pulling out the donuts and croissants, and catching up with one another. And so we've had our fellowship, and then we move on. And fellowship is simply the social component to community. And yet what I find deeply embedded in the concept of koinonia is that it was far more than that. It was, it was a joint activity. Listen to this. It was a joint activity. We think fellowship is just standing around and drinking coffee and donuts, but listen, it's having a share in some external activity. It's making a contribution. That's what koinonia is. It's making a contribution. It's participating in a very tangible way 
to the development of that community and further communities within your region. So when we make that contribution, we're setting aside determining how we want to help build greater koinonia. So koinonia becomes making a contribution. In Romans chapter 12, 13, let love be without hypocrisy, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints. That's koinonia. Also found in Galatians 6, 6. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things, that's koinonia, with the one who teaches them. So the word koinonia is, is connected to the idea of support, financial support, giving. Part of your motivation in giving as a believer is tied to koinonia, your fellowship. Making a contribution builds greater koinonia. And it's the opportunity for you and I to continue to see more communities developed in the South Bay to bring about more koinonia, more fellowship, more entering in, more commitment. And so as we give, I want to challenge you, as we've been talking about even looking for new sites, new locations, we're talking about koinonia. We're talking about committing, contributing, to see more koinonia happen within a number of more new communities around the South Bay. And we want to be committed to that. And we're going to be pushing on and forward into that. I want to challenge you. As you think about real community, think about what that means to you. Because it's a part of your faith. It's a part part about being part of a community. So community is far more than just simply meeting your social needs. It's way more than that. It's participating. It's developing your faith. It's growing. It's being an encourager. And it's including other people. That's what community is about. And the challenge for us is will we press in to greater, deeper community? And I guarantee you what happens is greater friendships come out of that, greater connections. I mean, one thing I love about our church is a church of friends. We love each other. We're friends with one another but we also have faith. And we need to press into that faith and to be challenged by God's word to not simply leave it at a social level, but let's really push in for this next year. Should we do it? That's what it's about. So let's pray together as we close and we're going to enter a time of a communion, which is the remembering of Christ's sacrifice for us. So Father, I, I do want us to, to pause for a moment I know you do too, and I want us to really think about this deeper community, this longing that we might have, maybe the ways we've experienced it already, and we're just overflowed with joy, maybe some areas where we're being challenged to grow deeper in our community, maybe it's in our sense of superiority, or removing some of that, or becoming, stepping up and being a Barnabas in this community, or giving to the famine. There are ways in which we can get involved, and I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come upon us in a way that would bring us into greater community by motivating us to take the next step. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.